Some of you will remember the movie City Slickers from 1990. I have to check my notes. 1991. Billy Crystal and Jack Palance star in a movie in which Billy Crystal portrays a man who has felt like his life just has no meaning. And so he goes west to a real working ranch where he hopes in the open spaces and among the cattle he will find some answers. And he asks a real working cowboy named Curly about the meaning of life. Let's take a look. Cowboy leads a different kind of life than there were cowboys. They're a dying breed. Still means something to me, though. A couple of days, we'll move this herd across the river, driving through the valley. Oh, <laughs> there's nothing like bringing in a herd. See, now that's great. Your life makes sense to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come up here about the same age, same problems. You spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then, then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No. What? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. What did Curly say is the secret to life? One thing. Curly couldn't tell the character in the movie what that one thing was, and I would not presume to tell you what the secret of your life is. But I would like for us to look at the words of the Apostle Paul. He, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote something that I believe has the potential to change your life. I want to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I want to take just a moment to explain why I put the text that I'm going to read on the screen. I encourage you to bring your Bible, or at least bring your, your smartphone, and look up, look up the Bible text for yourself. Read it for yourself. See what God's Word has to say for yourself. I believe there is a real distinct advantage in reading from your own Bible. I put the words on the text or the words on the screen for a couple of reasons. Number one, sometimes people just get out without their Bible and, and I want them to be able to read along. Most importantly, every time I preach, I'm anticipating that you're going to bring someone with you that's never been to church maybe doesn't own a Bible, maybe if we ask them to turn to the book of Philippians, just very simply wouldn't be able to find it. I'm expecting every week that you bring someone like that with you. And then when you do, they have the opportunity to see for themselves what the Word of God has to say. I believe that God's Word is that powerful. This morning, I want to suggest from this text, that one of the reasons 
that we don't experience the joy that the Apostle Paul writes about repeatedly in this book of Philippians is that we have too many objectives. We want so very much. Think again about what Curly observed. You city folk get knots in your rope. Do you feel like you have too many knots in your rope? Would you like to have joy? Would you like to have real joy? But you just feel like there are too many knots in your rope to really experience joy. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote to his friends living in the city of Philippi. Along with the letter, he included a little bit of his own biography. He told them about his own experience with Christ. And as I read this text... I want to ask you to look for what the Apostle Paul says is his one thing. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Excuse me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If everyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and pressing toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This letter to the Christians in the city of Philippi Philippians has played a significant role in my life on a number of different occasions. It has provided courage when I was afraid, joy when I was sad, and hope 
when I was discouraged. And I want to take you back to verse 10 because verse 10 has been for me the pivot of a turning point in my life. Verse 10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, I've read that many times. And I had read it a number of times before I encountered it again in 1989. 1989 was a very difficult time for me. I was preaching for a church and then going through some difficulties with that. Those times come and go. If you've had any experience with a church, you know there are good times and not so good times in the life of any church. And it was a not so good time for me. And it was a time when I was searching. I'm not sure which metaphor fits. I don't know if I'd come to a crossroads. I don't know if I had come to a dead end. I think maybe what happened was I got caught in one of those horrible roundabouts and couldn't get off. In short, I was looking for a sense of purpose or a meaning for my life. And once again, I ran across Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, but this time... It struck a chord with me. And this time my whole being shouted out, that is what I want. I want to know Christ. I want to know His power. I want to share with Him. And I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. And there it is. For me, that is my one thing. That is my goal. That is my purpose. That is my meaning. I want to know Christ. And focusing on that brought huge change to my life. It also changed Paul's life. Let's go back to verse 12 of our text in Philippians 3. Where he writes, not that I have already obtained all of this. Paul's saying, I'm not perfect yet. I don't have all power. I haven't suffered everything, and I certainly haven't attained to the resurrection of the dead. But now go to verses 13 and 14 in our text. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. Paul says, I don't have it all together, but I know where I am going. Why does Paul have a purpose? Because he has chosen one thing. One key to success in any endeavor is to choose one thing to do and then do it to the best of your ability. As an athlete in high school, I had the experience of being a winner and being a part of a winning team. I have an excellent coach who very literally dominated our lives. He was three times selected as coach of the year 
for the state of Indiana. He was a successful coach of a winning team. Coach Peterson was committed to our team, and he demanded the same from us. He expected and he received commitment, determination, and focus. We participated in no other sports. The guys on the football team could play basketball. The guys on the basketball team could play baseball. All we did was run. All year long. And the coach put prohibitions on us. One of the prohibitions that sticks out in my mind is skiing. I've never skied in my life. Not snow skiing, not water skiing. When does one generally learn to do that? In the teenage years. And it was forbidden. Because we didn't want to take the risk of hampering a winning season because of a broken leg. Coach demanded from us just one thing, being part of a winning team. Now that kind of focus is increasingly difficult in our culture. I think that in all likelihood, most of you here today feel like you're being pulled in different directions. Some of you are, are old enough to remember the old black and white cowboy movies. And you remember what one of the things that the Indians would do to the hero in the movies is they would tie ropes to his, arm, to his hands and then to his feet. And they would tie the ropes to horses and they would pull the horses away. And the cowboy would be lifted up off the ground and you could see the agony in his face as he was about to be torn limb from limb. And then the cal- cavalry would come over the hill and rescue the cowboy. And some of you know what that feels like. Because you feel like you're being pulled. You are literally being pulled apart. Because you have forces drawing you in five or six different directions. And you feel, at least emotionally, that you're about to be torn limb from your limb, limb from limb because your boss is pulling and your spouse is pulling and your kids are yanking and the church is pleading and you'd like to have just a little bit of time for yourself. Is it any wonder that your stress level is high and you feel like you're about to be pulled into a dozen different pieces? I think that the Apostle Paul must have felt like that too. In order to cope with that, he made a choice. But this one thing I do, he limited his goals. In verse 13 of our, of our text, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do. And he said that he did that in order to get the prize. He talked to us about that more at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 24, where he wrote, Do you not know that all the know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. 
So what was the prize? Heaven? Certainly. Was the prize eternal life? No doubt about that. What was the source of heaven and eternal life? What was the source of of life? It was knowing Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 10 of our text, I want to know Christ. Paul's goal, the prize that he wanted to win, was eternal life with his Lord and Savior. He wanted to know Christ and to share his life with him. He wanted to know Christ now and know Christ through all of eternity. For this was Paul's one thing. Living in such a way that his life in Christ was strong. And his relationship with Christ was rewarding. That is where Paul found his joy. His joy was in the Lord. We can find a similar experience in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah led the people of Jerusalem to rebuilding the walls around the city. In 587 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon, which is what is now Iraq, He came from Babylon, besieged the city, and eventually knocked down its walls, carried away its people. In 586, he completely leveled the city. And then Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem 70 years later. There was fierce opposition to their work. The people were frightened and discouraged. Finally, when they had completed the wall... And there was some sense of security. They took time for worship and celebration. So let me read for you from the book of Nehemiah about that worship and celebration. Nehemiah 8 verses 9 and 10 read, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred To the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared for this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We sang about that this morning. One of the songs that we sang this morning reminded us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. While I'm talking about songs, we also sang this morning, I want to know you, Lord. Jeff did a great job of tying together the songs and what I had to say. Jeff didn't know very much about what I was going to say. My guess is that the Holy Spirit was the one that wove all of that together. So we read in Nehemiah that the people had heard the reading of the law because they had not been obedient to the word of God, because they had not been paying attention to the law, because they had not been fulfilling the law. They were weeping. But when there was enough sorrow, when there was enough repentance, when there was enough grieving because of the way they had hurt the heart of God, because... 
there had been enough of realizing what their sin had done, not only to them individually and their families, but to their entire culture. When there was enough of that, Nehemiah said, stop your weeping. Now go and celebrate what God is doing. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I'm wondering if that raises a question in your mind. If having this joy of the Lord. I'm sorry. I turned two pages in my notes at the same time. Nehemiah. Let me go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah said that the people should find their joy in the strength of God. So, let's go back and ask Paul. Where did Paul find his joy? In the Lord. Where will we find real joy? Both Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul will tell us. that We will find it in the Lord. We will find it in Jesus Christ. But we will not find genuine joy. We will not find life-changing joy if we simply make Jesus one of our many pursuits. I want to go back to verse 13 where the Apostle Paul said, But one thing I do. And I'm wondering if that raises a question in your mind. If I make Jesus the one thing that I do, then does that mean that I have to go live on a mountain and eat sticks and twigs? And pray every hour on the hour. Well, no, not necessarily. As attractive as that may sound. The heart of this is reestablishing my priorities. Now, for just a moment, I'm going to tread on Joshua's text for his sermon. Next Sunday, I'm going to dip down into verse 19. But there's still plenty of thunder. I'm only going to steal a little bit of it. So I want to ask you to go to Philippians 3, find verse 19. And the people that we're going to read about here will seem very familiar to us. They will seem familiar to us because these are people who have many goals. And we have lots of goals, don't we? Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. 4, excuse me. Those are tiny, tiny little verse marks. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. I want to stop right there and I want to tell you about a guy whose God is his stomach. He goes to Applebee's and he sees on the restaurant menu brownie topped with ice cream and hot fudge. And whipped cream. And he knows. He knows this is bad for his cholesterol. He knows this will push his blood sugar too high. He knows this is only going to make it more difficult to get into that really great pair of pants he owns. But he orders it anyway. Because his God is his stomach. His stomach rules his life. Go back to verse 19 where we read, And their glory is in their shame. 
Paul's writing about people who want to be respected. He's writing about people who want to be rich and famous. He's writing about people who want to be self-actualized. But all of the things that they're doing to bring themselves this glory is actually only bringing them shame. Let's continue. Their mind is on earthly things. Earthly things like a bigger house, a nicer car, a more exotic vacation. Earthly things are always so attractive, but my experience has been that they're always so disappointing. For example, I've read about a man who had just finished putting gas in his car. He had absentmindedly taken the gas cap off, put it up on the roof of the car, finished filling the tank, got in the car, drove off. Realized, as he's a couple miles down the road, I didn't put that gas cap on. Pulls off, looks, sure enough, no gas cap. And he's thinking, I can't be the first one that's done this. So even if I don't find my gas cap, maybe I'll find one that fits. So he goes walking back down the road, backtracking the way he came. And sure enough, he'd not gone very far. Right there on the side of the road. Perfectly fine gas cap. Picks it up, blows it off, takes it over to his car, twists it in. Nice little snug click. And he's thinking, this is great. I lost my gas cap. And then I found a gas cap. It fits, and this one's even better because it's got a lock. So very often, so very often, what was so attractive becomes very disappointing. And then Paul goes on and writes, their destiny is destruction. Why? Well, part of the problem is they've just had too many goals. Luxury, pain, luxury, fame, power, possessions, too many goals, too many desires, too many distractions. Eventually they just get pulled apart. At the other extreme, Paul is focused. He's focused on just one thing. One reward. Eternal life. One plan, the power of Jesus Christ, who has everything under his control. One goal, the transformation of our bodies, and only one way to all of that, to know Christ. When you have just one goal, when you have decided that you want just one thing, then everything else begins to fall in place. Questions about morality are answered very simply. Will I lie to my friend? Will I lie to a client? Will I cheat on a test? Will I call in sick when I'm not? Will I have sex with someone I'm not married to? Will I tell a joke at someone else's expense? Questions about how I spend my time. Are easily answered. Am I going to work 80 hours a week? Am I going to spend 20 hours a week at the gym? Am I going to spend 40 hours a week in front of a television? Am I going to spend 5 hours a week with my family? Am I going to spend just 1 hour a week with my God? When 
Just one thing is our goal. The rest of the stuff starts to fall in place. It gets ordered, gets prioritized. Because it all has to fit beneath that one thing. William Booth was a man with just one goal. Mr. Booth walked among the poor, the hungry, the sick, and the lonely people of London. They were crammed into crumbling buildings that were full of rats. There were very few jobs, and there was no one to help them. Worst of all, there was no one to tell them that Jesus cared. They did not know that Jesus had died to be their Savior and that He lives again to be their Lord. William Booth said to his wife, I have given myself to work for God among these sick souls. And the work that he began is known today as the Salvation Army. Years later when someone asked General Booth the secret of his success, he said, God had all there was of me to have. From the day I got the poor of London in my heart and a vision of what Jesus would do for them, I made up my mind that God would have everything there was of William Booth. God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. William Booth gave Jesus complete charge of his life. He made Jesus Lord of all. Are you ready to make that decision? Are you ready to make Jesus Lord of all your life? What would you tell Curly this is? Was it just a finger? Is it a 401k? Is it the pursuit of pleasure? Is it tickets to Hawaii? Or is it knowing Christ? Is knowing Jesus Christ what you want? Can you say right now, can you say with the Apostle Paul, I want to know Christ? If you've never made that decision, perhaps today is the day that you will decide. I want to know Christ. No matter where it takes me, no matter what it costs me, I want to know Christ. It might be that at some point you made that decision, but somehow your loyalty has shifted and you realize it's time to renew that commitment. If you'd like to talk about that, Donna and I are staying for the cookout. And we'd love just to sit around a table and talk with you about what it would really mean for you to know Christ. Your elders are also here. And they would love to talk to you 
about what it would really mean for you to know Christ. Find one of us today. And let's explore that. I want to lead us in a prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Acknowledging, Father, that you are indeed not only our creator, but you are our sustainer. You are not only the one who gave us life. You are the one who instills within us the hope of eternal life. We praise you as the God who created not only this world, but you formed the plan to redeem this world, to buy us back, to purchase us by the blood of your son Jesus. So just now, just now we ask that your spirit will work in us, that having been challenged by your word, that you will bring about change. Change our loyalties, change our priorities, change our decisions. In short, not, not just change our lives. Recreate us. Transform us into the image of your son Jesus. And we ask to do that. We ask that you will, because we want to know Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.